Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. The introduction of biosimilars to the U.S. market has led to an unprecedented amount of uncertainty as stakeholders try to understand the implications of their arrival. The Center for Biosimilars, a sister site of the American Journal of Managed Care, serves as an online resource that brings together the worlds of clinical, business, regulatory, policy, and economic outcomes of biosimilars. Biosimilars are biologic products that are highly similar but not identical to innovator biologic products and that can enter the market after innovator products lose patent exclusivity. While biosimilars are still in their infancy in the United States, the European Union has a longer history of approval and use of biosimilars. The first biosimilar was approved in the United States in 2015, and to date there are only nine approved by the FDA, and only three commercially available. In comparison, the European Medicines Agency approved its first biosimilar 11 years ago, and there are nearly 40 approved in the European Union today. The introduction of biosimilars to the United States provides great promise, as they are expected to bring down the price of medications, but also challenges. Biosimilars face stringent regulatory requirements, continued education of patients and physicians, and ongoing litigation issues. In the following peer exchange discussion from the Center for Biosimilars, held in September 2017, industry experts discuss regulation, policy, and litigation issues in the world of biosimilars. For more insight into the world of biosimilar therapies, visit centerforbiosimilars.com. Hello, and thank you for joining the Center for Biosimilars Peer Exchange titled Regulation, Policy, and Litigation in Biosimilars. I am Amanda Foris, Senior Director of Reimbursement Policy Insights at Accenda. Participating in our distinguished panel are Hakun Wong, partner at Fitzpatrick, Chella, Harper, and Sinto, Molly Burrich, Associate Director of Public Policy, Biosimilars Pipeline Reimbursement at Beringer Ingelheim, and Dr. Angus Worthing, practicing rheumatologist at Arthritis and Rheumatism Associates and chair of the American College of Rheumatology's Government Affairs Committee. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's begin. First, we're going to talk about biosimilar regulation in the United States and Europe. The FDA is currently reviewing industry feedback on its interchangeability draft guidance. Molly, will biosimilar manufacturers seeking interchangeability have an effect on how reference product sponsors attempt to protect market share? It's a great question. I think it will. I think, um, you know, the purpose of interchangeability from an FDA standpoint is really geared towards proving that switching products for any given patient will result in the same clinical outcome as the originator. Uh, Therefore, we believe that the designation of interchangeability will be meaningful. It will be meaningful from a patient standpoint. Hopefully it builds their confidence in the product they're taking. And we really believe it'll be meaningful from a physician standpoint as the data will be built and designed exactly for switching. So we think it it will impact behavior uh, across the industry for those designations when they're given. 
Yeah, I'd like to also mention something about you know, Warfarin product sponsors. I think that to a certain extent, they're really going to move to protect their products even more strongly because of the fact that interchangeables act like the traditional small molecule generic where they can kind of piggyback on the marketing and education of the branded drug. And so they're going to look for ways to actually find other ways to protect it, get additional IP, and I can see a lot more challenges from interchangeable manufacturers as well on IP that is owned by RPS. In particular, of the interchangeable guidance, they actually talk about how product presentation, for instance, including labeling, packaging, and delivery design, design uh, device design is actually really important and has to be looked at. Um, and because of that, I can see reference product sponsors looking to get IP around those aspects to kind of protect their market share as well. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's a great point. I think that the, you know, the interchangeability guidance was probably um, the, the most long-awaited guidance that the FDA released as it pertains to biosimilars. Um, there were industry, physicians, every stakeholder um, was really uh, interested to see what the FDA was going to require. And I think the reality is it's a high bar, and appropriately so, uh, for what it's trying to prove. Dr. Worthing, so we don't have an interchangeable biosimilar on the market yet, but how would the um, designation of interchangeability affect you as a provider in your clinical prescribing practices? Great question. Um, Molly's right. Doctors and patients have been waiting, I think, for the interchangeability guidance. Um, I think it would help confidence um, from, as a rheumatologist and somebody who writes prescriptions for biologics, there's two general situations in which a doctor might write a prescription for a biologic. That's um, for a patient who hasn't taken the drug yet, and they're new to the drug. Um, and then there's the situation where we're writing a prescription for somebody who's already been on the reference product, say, for some time and might have been doing well, and we're writing a prescription for the biosimilar for them to, to change over and move. Um, I think in the first instance, um, we're getting a really good uh, amount of confidence in the FDA pathway which shows that the structure and function and anticipated um, usefulness, safety, and efficacy of biosimilars are biosimilar to their reference products. And to me, that kind of matches up with the first clinical situation where I'm prescribing a biosimilar to a patient who's not taking a drug yet. Where the interchangeability pathway comes in, I think, in boosting confidence is in that second uh, situation where a patient might be doing well on a drug and both the doctor and the patient are interested in knowing if a biosimilar, which might be cheaper or they might have easier access to it, if that's gonna work the same way, not cause any more side effects, still uh, keep their disease under control. And that's where I think the pathway that the FDA has drafted, which we saw this winter, um, really helps uh, boost confidence. The, the pathway suggests clinical trial design where um, manufacturers start patients all on the biologic reference product and then switch three times to the biosimilar, back to the reference product, and then back to the biosimilar and confirm that they're just as safe and effective. Um, I think that that'll help in that situation where we can be confident telling the patient this drug that might seem new to you, but it's going to work just as well as the drug you've been taking. So that actually ties a little bit into a follow-up question I was, I was thinking of. So as you're currently, com you're currently comfortable with the pathway, you're currently comfortable with a patient, as you're saying, kind of a new patient, a new start with the FDA guidance. So this is really just that switch patient, your continuing patient thinking about switching the therapy. But what evidence are you currently relying on in looking at products that have been approved to make sure that you're comfortable prescribing them? 
Right now we're looking at two different kinds of evidence mainly. One is looking, uh, it's called analytical data. That's uh, data in the test tube and data of, about the molecule and how it works, that the mechanism of action um, works the same way as the reference product. And then the second kind of data is clinical trial data. So that includes um, putting the drug into people who have the disease that the drug is um, applying for uh, indication and making sure that it works just as well and has uh, as few safety signals as the reference product. Um, so right now we're looking at those two kinds of data and um, judging that these biosimilars work just as well as the reference product. Thank you. Can I ask a question, Angus, because I, I'm kind of curious about this. You know, as a first designated interchangeable that gets in the market, do you think this is going to be a tipping point where, because biosimilar uptake has been a little bit slower than anticipated, that more physicians will be more likely to prescribe biosimilars? Or do you think that they're going to start saying, well, biosimilars are somewhat inferior to interchangeables and just ignore them because they don't have the switching studies, they don't have the presentation studies and the FDA's blessing? Great question, Hakun. Um, I think that depends on a lot of variables. One is how good the data is for that interchangeable. Um, we want to see the data from clinical trials uh, right in the FDA uh, package insert. Um, we want to know about them. Our, uh, all doctors, and when they're talking to their patients, should learn about the drug and how well it works. I think if that happens, and then on the payer side, people who are paying for the drugs, insurance companies, uh, pharmacy benefits managers, the government, um, if they also see the value of the interchangeable drug, I think that we'll get a good market uptake. Uh, you were referencing how the biosimilars market hasn't uh, taken on as quickly as hoped. Um, I think we're all interested in, from providers and patients' perspective, getting the prices down. And that's, that's all we're talking about today with biosimilars, is trying to reduce the prices. And really, that's probably going to hinge on uh, market uptake and getting more biosimilars into the market. Yeah, and I, and I would I would totally agree, Dr. Worthing. You know, coming from a manufacturer perspective, I think um, it's very important that all the stakeholders understand that a um, biosimilar that's quote unquote just a biosimilar um, is not less safe or um, less quality. It, it's quite the opposite, actually. I think the bar for biosimilarity is is high to Dr. Worthing's point around the analytics in particular. Um, but I think it's going to be uh, beholden for all stakeholders to understand that, in fact, a product with just a biosimilarity, biosimilarity designation um, isn't less anything. Um, it's different. If you pursue interchangeability, the purpose of that is different. And therefore, I think to Dr. Worthing's point, uh, manufacturers will look at product by product and make that uh, decision, which is, is a very significant investment. Um, as Dr. Worthing mentioned, it's a, a large-scale clinical trial. Um, and because of the number of switches, it requires a lot of time. Um, and therefore, it's, it's not an overnight proposition. So, you know, I, I think that um, I think we'll see some uh, molecules in some markets that interchangeability is is very important. And I think we'll see other areas where it's less important, um, either because of how the product is um, given to the patient or the disease area. If it's an acute use in oncology, I think you'll see uh, things look very different from an interchangeability standpoint versus a chronic use agent um, where a patient might be on it for years or, or decades. When we're talking about the confidence in the biosimilar pathway mm -hmm. um, and achieving biosimilarity, a lot of my colleagues and um, experts in the biosimilars field that I talk to will discuss uh, a biosimilar 
as being akin to a new batch or a new lot of a reference biologic drug. And the, and the way we talk about that is we know that since 1998, when, when the first biologic in rheumatology was approved, um, that drug is different from the drug that's uh, coming under the same brand name now. It has shifted because of change in manufacturing techniques, often improvements. And we now know with analytical detail and technology uh, that's available these days that a biosimilar might be more like a current reference biologic than that reference biologic is similar to when it started, when it was first FDA approved. And so thinking of it in that light, you can consider a, a drug that has achieved biosimilarity status, according to the FDA, as a new batch or a new lot of the reference product. Right. And I was just thinking that since you're a specialist, that might be something that you would look one step further to figure that out. But for the average healthcare provider, and would they be looking at this from the, from the perspective of all the history with small molecules, where you have a generic drug which has an exact ingredient that's identical, and that they say, yes, a pharmacy, a pharmacist can actually make that substitution, and the interchangeable is really kind of the biologic version of that, whereas the biosimilar is just another product. So, you know, in some ways, if you're looking at it from somebody who's not digging deeper, doesn't it, doesn't it somehow make it sound like the interchangeable has been blessed by the FDA as being safer or, you know, substitutable for this product? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that that's a, um, I, I think that's certainly part of what some people are thinking. I think the FDA has made it very clear in their thinking that that is not that is not true, that it's less safe, um, because of course the, the hurdle for biosimilarity is where you determine whether the product has um, enough uh, of the analytical uh, similarity to be considered similar. Um, but I, I definitely agree that there will be that perception, um, and I think that uh, you know, in part, that's why in Europe they don't have the designation of interchangeability. And the reason um, for that is because they believe in the science of biosimilarity and leave it up to the individual countries to decide. Um, and, you know, hindsight's 2020, right? We're, we're, only, uh, we're only seven years in in the U.S. Um, but I think, uh, you know, thinking that there could be a perception that an interchangeable is a higher quality um, or higher, higher level of safety or efficacy um, is, is incorrect. And I think the FDA will continue to try and reiterate that. Um, the reason why there are two different designations is they're proving two different things. Um, so I, I think that it's a, it's a worthwhile point um, because I think stakeholders will, as they learn more about it, um, could, could naturally go to that. And, and the truth is it's, it's a different pathway and it's a different approach from small molecules for, for many reasons, the least of which is, is the complexity of the molecules. Um, Molly brings up Europe, and um, I think that's a, an astute observation. Um, the difference between bio, the biosimilar pathway and the interchangeable pathway is probably in the eye of the beholder uh, in, at this point. Um, for me, a biosimilar uh, designation means that a drug is expected to work as well and have the same safety issues as a reference product. Um, like I said, a new batch of the old reference product. On the other hand, I think interchangeability um, is an excellent idea in the multi-payer, multi-state market like the United States compared to Europe um, because patients that I prescribe drugs for can be expected to move, change insurances, um, graduate into Medicare, or their formulary of their same old insurance might change year to year. And so they may actually expect to switch back and forth from a, a reference product to a biosimilar. And so I'm thrilled that the FDA proposes to study drugs like that.
Okay, let's talk a little bit more about the FDA. Um, so a recent paper argued that bridging studies are redundant and should not be required in clinical development of biosimilars. What potential challenges could be associated with using a single global reference product? So I think, as Dr. Worthing mentioned, um, it, it's a great question um, because, you know, uh, reference products in a, in a lot of ways are biosimilar to themselves, right? Um, your product that was created in 1998 looks very different than what's being manufactured in 2017. Um, so I think that the FDA, in including bridging studies between the U.S., the uh, European Union product and the biosimilar is really just trying to ensure that um, any differences that, that would be natural because of the process of these um, are accounted for clinically and also are, um, you know, reflected in the clinical data of the product. So, you know, I think as it's certainly possible that uh, the agency's thinking evolves as the biosimilar pathway evolves. Um, but for now, I think the bridging study um, that's required makes a lot of sense to, to, again, build that confidence in physicians who will write them, um, payers who will potentially require them, um, and patients who ultimately take them and want want to make sure they're um, getting a high quality product that's not going to create any issues with their disease. Yeah, I, I have to agree with that. And I'll just say uh, that, you know, biological products with different manufacturing sites and, of course, post-approval changes in manufacturing, and, and this is something that Angus had mentioned as well and, and Molly had mentioned, there's some product drift and there can be some issues there. You don't want to have differences that emerge in the, criti in the critical quality attributes of the product. So I agree. It, it definitely makes sense the way it is. The FDA and EMA have signaled a need for greater regulatory alignment in terms of sharing inspection information, and the agencies have entered a new agreement to share full inspection reports with one another. How has the industry received news of this change and the types of information being shared among regulatory bodies? Well, I will say that my impression from at least people that I work with from the, from the intellectual property side is that there is some concern about the fact that confidential information can be included in these types of reports. And they are often because a lot of this is manufacturing information. So in the United States, uh, obviously trade secrets are very important to manufacturing. A lot of those things can be included in these inspection reports. Typically, the FDA has been, has been sharing uh, redacted reports to take out the uh, trade secrets. But with this type of uh, cooperation, which is good, you want to have cooperation. You want to make sure that resource management is, is done correctly. But you always run the risk of disclosing those trade secrets. And uh, as anybody who worked with trade secrets knows, once it's out there, it's out there. You're not getting it back. You know, KFC's secret recipe of 11 herbs and spices, when that's out there, it's gone, <laughs> right? So you're not going to be able to recover that. And the more times it's duplicated, the more times it's sent out, and you send it out to a regulatory agency in, in Europe, and they say in their, in their press release that this agreement uh, recognizes the uh, EU has the authority and demonstrated ability to protect confidential information, well, that leaves industry in the uh, position of crossing their fingers and hope that's true. And um, it's a little scary, you know? It's a little bit scary from an IP perspective. So do you think that this type of relationship is a wise use of resources, or do you think this is something that could potentially delay approval and subsequent availability of biosimilars? It's to be determined in a lot of ways because it's a relatively new development. Um, but I, I do think that the timelines often are different um, between approval, you know, at, at different in different countries. Um, so that's sort of built into the process already. Um, I think the bigger question is is really how much are the agencies going to be able to um, keep what should be 
um, proprietary, proprietary. Yeah. And I also note that since 2012, the FDA has had authority to actually share the trade secret information to European regulators, but they haven't. They've actually given uh, only redacted reports. So it goes to show the FDA does understand the importance of this to particularly biologics. As Molly mentioned, this is a lot of times that's the really important aspect of making uh, your product. Now we're going to talk about reform at the agency, state, and federal levels. Definitely um, an interesting topic in today's political climate. Let's start talking about the FDA first. In the FDA's Drug Price Action Plan, the agency explains that it will prioritize the review of generic drug applications until there are three approved generics for a given small molecule drug. Is there any expectation that the FDA would do this for biosimilar products? Well, I, I don't know if there will, but I think it's, it's a possibility. My only concern is that I don't think that actually gets them to the market any faster. Uh, I think that in the typical situation, you're looking, at a situ you're looking at this new biologic exclusivity that exists. So that's a 12-year period where you can't get approval of a biosimilar anyway. Uh, and so getting priority review, uh, you know, I don't know, how, the FDA can be slow, but 12 years slow is pretty freaking slow. And I don't know if that's going to be an issue. Um, now, that does make a difference, obviously, to some of the things that are being looked at today, because, you know, like Zarxio and Sandoz v. Amgen, that regulatory, regulatory exclusivity is already gone. So in that respect, perhaps that might help. But I don't, I don't really see the real benefit because with the small molecules, you know, that was kind of a policy that was put in place in light of this high-profile Daraprim and EpiPen stuff that was going on in 2016. And, and there, their goal was to try to increase competitors for products that have already gone generic. Right? And, and you know, that's not really an analogous situation to a biologic BLA product and biosimilars. So interesting perspective. Molly, do manufacturers see this issue differently? You know, I, I think I agree with, with much of what Hakun said. I also think, you know, um, part of it is that we're, we're 30 plus years into the generic um, pathway. And I think that at this point, the FDA, uh, in particular, Commissioner Gottlieb, who has probably been um, one of the more um, vocal uh, FDA commissioners on lowering drug prices, given what a challenge they are in the U.S. for for patients um, to to handle. So I think that you know it's it's sort of a an apples to oranges comparison in the sense that you know I think that Commissioner Gottlieb and the FDA broadly is trying to implement policies um, on a pathway that's been around for a while um, that we've seen certainly success in lowering drug cost um, and and high levels of generic utilization across the country. Um, I think that it's it's probably too soon um, to implement something like that for the biosimilar pathway. Um, and I'm with, I, I agree with Hakun that I'm not sure it, it really speeds anything up. Um, I think that you know, the uh, commissioner's comments in support of the biosimilar pathway are important to hear. And it's great to see that you know, the, the head official at the FDA is, is supportive of this pathway that obviously was implemented in a different administration. Um, and I think that you know, the commissioner and, and his deputies will continue to support the pathway. Um, and I can certainly envision down the road that we'll learn things that we don't know right now, um, seven years in and, and seven approved products and only three launched. So I think we're in our infancy and we won't see any type of policy like this, but I do think Commissioner Gottlieb um, is focused on lowering drug prices and, and we certainly as a manufacturer believe biosimilars is, is one part of the solution for that. Okay. Do you expect the FDA's recent announcement of a new alignment between the Center for Drug Evaluation and the Office for Regulatory Affairs to speed up the process of drug approvals? 
you know, I think that I think internal alignment in the FDA is, is probably always beneficial. Um, I think that you know the the FDA has um, a, a very wide purview on what they manage. Of, of course, drugs is is a big part of it, and it's certainly the part that um, people pay a lot of attention to. So I think internal alignment um, and removing some of the backlog that we've seen in generic approvals is important. Um, Again, I, I don't know how much that applies to biosimilars, given the infancy and also given the complexity of, of biologics, quite frankly. But um, I do think you know improved alignment is, is probably always best for patients to be able to get more competitively um, priced products that are you know safe and effective, and and the FDA is is doing their job in, in that way. Yeah. The oh, goal go here seems to be improving the public health response to keep pace with uh, acceleration, scientific innovation. Um, in a way that um, establishes uh, modern legal authorities and, and uh, allows for global expansion of markets. Um, at American College of Rheumatology, we're excited about anything that will speed safe and effective drugs um, uh, into the marketplace because it lowers costs and increases access. So um, we're excited to see Dr. Gottlieb leading um, some innovative uh, concepts, this kind of um, Intracenter or intra-agency cooperation is probably going to be helpful, especially because we've noticed that um, FDA. There are a lot of positions at FDA unfilled, and sometimes difficult to uh, hire the experts that are needed to issue the guidances and also approve the drugs. So this kind of innovation um, can only be helpful in getting drugs out into the pipeline, out of the pipeline, into the marketplace. And I will also just comment, though, I don't know how much faster, and I'm, I oftentimes say that things are slow, but the FDA has been actually pretty good about getting ANDAs approved. Uh, and according to the FDA, in 2016, there were 159 more ANDA approvals than in 2015, and 242 more ANDA approvals than in 2014. So the fact of the matter is that ANDA approvals are actually being go, are getting through the FDA relatively quickly. So I'm not sure if it's really necessary to make it any faster because obviously the safety and efficacy portion is what we really care about. So let's turn to the commercial market because I think this is an interesting area where we're seeing some dynamics between um, plans and reference manufacturers. Um, what we've seen is that some of the health plans are bypassing the adoption of biosimilars and not placing them on their formularies because they have had favorable contracting relationships with the reference product sponsors. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about what the implications of that could be. Um, first, from um, how the federal agencies might react to this. Is this something that the FDA or the Federal Trade Commission could uh, view as an anti-competitive uh, relationship between the manufacturers and the plants? Well, that's a really well-timed question, uh, Amanda, because Pfizer just yesterday sued Johnson & Johnson uh, in district court, alleging that the contracts and rebates with the insurers and providers for Remicade uh, are anti-competitive under the antitrust laws. And essentially what we have there is you have uh, J&J offering rebates to insurers uh, in, who cover Remicade and for Remicade in order to not uh, have contractual commitments with Inflectra. So what they're saying is that, listen, if you want to get these rebates, then don't cover the uh, biosimilar. And the question is, is that anti-competitive? And although it sounds in that high level that it might be, the fact of the matter is that J&J you know, &J has come out and said that, listen, what we're doing is we're providing the Remicade to what's called an economically uh, incontestable group. So it's a group of people who are already taking Remicade, and they're not going to switch to anything else. They're 
they're going to take continue taking it. So it doesn't really matter. And the portion that's contestable is not really that big of a deal, and that's just the new patients taking infliximab therapy. Um, but you know, it could be because what they what Pfizer is alleging is that J and J is leveraging the incontestable demand in order to lock up the contestable demand. They're trying to get the new patients too by making sure that the uh, that the health plan is not going to cover the the, the inflectra, the biosimilar. You know, it's unclear what's going to happen. The complaint was just filed. We don't know what J&J is going to say about it. Um, certainly be very, very interesting. Um, part of this is, is a, a discussion that might be just naturally uh, out of the fact that it's a biosimilar and not interchangeable. Right? I mean, the fact is that if biosimilars need to be specifically prescribed, and, the, and, and that makes the demand for the innovator biologics incontestable, then is that really the sort of type of market power that the FTC is looking to kind of curtail, where it's unclear? Dr. Irving, how could something like this affect your patients and their access to these products? What are your concerns there? We've got a lot of concerns. So the way that the system is currently working, it appears like a biosimilar uh, manufacturer trying to get into the marketplace needs to uh, contract with a pharmacy benefits manager or a PBM. And the way that this is working um, brings up a lot of concerns because um, as we're talking about here today, the purpose of biosimilars is to try to reduce cost and increase access to drugs. But the way a pharmacy benefits management company designs formularies for payers appears to be that uh, extraction or payment system of uh, rebates and fees from manufacturers on the one hand and, and payers or pharmacies on the other hand. And that fee or rebate is a combination of the list price multiplied by rebate percentage multiplied by the market share. And so if a biosimilar doesn't have much market share yet because it's a new drug, they could offer a higher rebate uh, percentage or they could raise their list price in order to get on that formulary and uh, pay the PBM. And so it's concerning that there appear to be these uh, incentives to increase price, increase uh, rebate percentages uh, in order to get on a formulary. And the way the system appears to work, it might actually disrupt or um, prevent the process of biosimilars reducing costs. So what does this mean to patients? It appears like uh, if a patient is paying a copayment or a coinsurance on their drug, um, the way the system is set up, they may actually pay a percentage of the list price uh, as opposed to the discounted or rebated price, um, which seems to some people to be unfair. Or they might just not have access to the drug that the prescription is written for in the first place because of this uh, rebating process. So American College of Rheumatology that I represent has a lot of concerns about this. And um, we're happy to be educating uh, stakeholders and talking about this in the public forum. Molly, what effect could formulary placement of biosimilars and reference products, um, if, if that's set in place and it's hard for a patient to have coverage for a biosimilar, what could the downstream effect be um, for biosimilar manufacturers? How do you get your product adopted by providers? What do you do? Who, who actually drives that uptake? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, and, you know, I think we, we believe that um, health plans um, play an important role, certainly. They, they make formulary decisions, good, bad, or, or indifferent. Um, I think the, uh, the challenge with biosimilars is that 
what we're really trying to do is help bend the cost curve and be part of the solution on high-cost specialty drugs. Um, they're high cost to all stakeholders. They're high cost um, certainly to patients, as, as we know, um, but they're also high cost to health plans and employers. So there has to be um, some support from the payer community as well as the physician community and certainly patients um, who we want to buy into the, the sort of promise of biosimilars. Um, but we will need payers um, to be willing to um, push biosimilars. And, you know, it, it really comes down to the long-term sustainability of the market. Um, if the first few biosimilars um, that are, you know, on the market, approved, coming to the market, whatever their status is, um, if they can't get the type of, of uptake that really does start to bend the cost curve, I think all stakeholders will um, grow tired of, of the hope. I think physicians will say, this isn't really helping our, my patients. I think patients, if they don't see a change in their um, cost share, they'll grow tired of it. And I think manufacturers who are investing a great deal of money in biosimilars because they are significantly more expensive um, than bringing a, a small molecule generic to the market um, and much timelier, I think that you will see that the sustainability of the market um, in the U.S. starts to wane. And I don't think that's good for any stakeholder. Um, so I think it's it's probably all about finding the right balance. Um, I think to Angus's point, we want to make sure that um, Physicians are driving treatment choice and making uh, decisions on what's most appropriate. Um, but at the same time, for the patient where a biosimilar is appropriate, um, and certainly when we hopefully see interchangeable biosimilars, um, we'll start to see even more utilization. Um, but I caution that we are in the early days. We have three products launched. Um, no one defined the success of the generic market on the first couple of products. So um, I think we have to give the market some time. Um, but I think it's also fair to acknowledge that um, pay health plans, PBMs, they all play an important role um, and are an important stakeholder in this just as a physician and patient are. What I find interesting about the biosimilars market is you've got this whole concept of what products are placed on formulary, but then on the just actual use of the products and billing and claims processing, you have a whole other issue, um, which I'd like to talk about next. So I think in addition to concerns around how private payers are going to put these products on formulary, um, you also have a lot of concerns with the actual billing and coding policy for biosimilars. Um, as all of you are well aware, um, CMS has finalized its policy that says that all biosimilars to a reference product will be grouped into their own billing code, and that will be separate from the reference product. In addition, um, the biosimilar, uh, when you, as a provider, um, bill for a service, you will put the code for the biosimilar and then have to add a two-digit modifier that specifies the manufacturer of the product, and it's a random modifier code. This is a totally different policy than anyone has ever seen before um, with the billing guidelines from CMS and the use of the modifier for an actual manufacturer is unprecedented. How could something like this, just above and beyond what you're looking at with formulary placement, how could actual impl um, implementation of a coding and payment policy affect provider willingness to um, use these products if there's any concerns around claims processing and timely payment, and then ultimately uh, the uptake and the development of these products? Well, I'll take a shot. The American College of Rheumatology would actually uh, like this specific uh, policy to be changed, <clears throat> and we've um, said that to uh, CMS in our comments. Um, when uh, a, a provider or a group or hospital uh, has a patient that they're taking care of and wants to provide a specific drug, 
Um, it's pretty important for the, the doctor, for example, to be able to provide that drug to the patient on an individual basis. When um, one theoretical biosimilar in, the, in a family costs more for that doctor or hospital to purchase compared to another biosimilar in that reference product family, but if it's the right drug for that patient, um, there's pressure because of this system for that provider or group not to provide that drug um, because financially it might not be viable. They might lose money and they might um, have to switch that uh, patient to a different site of service, perhaps make them uh, drive further to get a, a hospital-based infusion or, or, uh, or switch to uh, the cheaper drug. That uh, system, we think, should switch to having each drug be reimbursed on its own merits uh, and its own, based on its own cost. Um, additionally, it's important for a drug to have its own code because a lot of doctors and systems track which drugs people receive uh, based on that code. And so having an individualized code would be very helpful for pharmacovigilance and for tracking um, what people are taking. Do you think the modifier code meets that, or do you think that that adds more of an administrative burden versus just here's the separate code? Uh, I'll believe it when I see it, but it <laughs> might mean that doctors would have to get to know, like you said, a very new system and track what, what modifier matches what drug. Um, and uh, again, we'll sort of see if that system works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Angus raise, raises great points from the physician perspective. Um, I will say that from a manufacturer perspective, um, there are equally as many concerns around this blended policy. Um, I think part of the concern is that during the approval process, the FDA is reviewing each biosimilar relative to the reference product not to one another. So in other words, biosimilar A is not compared to biosimilar B. And we think that putting um, products all in the same code um, almost kind of assumes that they, they are the same. And again, we're seven products in. Um, we just saw the approval of the first oncology, therapeutic oncology agent, um, not yet marketed. Um, but all of this is to say it's very early in this market um, to implement a policy that, that sort of equates all these products together. Um, I think that if there's one thing we know about biologics is that they are different and patients um, react differently. And that, that's just the, the nature of the being. Um, so we feel like the policy is um, challenging in, in that way because it's, it's sort of assuming they're all equal and, and we don't um, know that to be true and that's never proven from the regulatory agency standpoint. I think the other piece is that by only um, putting biosimilars together in the same code, um, you're half generating the competition that I think the agency wants to see. I think fundamentally CMS um, is in a bit of an unenviable position of trying to lower drug costs um, and trying to do things that are in their purview. Um, and that's probably why they developed this policy. Um, but we feel that competition, true competition, is, is across all products. So it's across including the innovator too. And right now the innovator is in its own code and, and that potentially, uh, to Angus's point, gives more stability from a reimbursement standpoint. Standpoint. Um, and therefore, a physician um, may be more comfortable continuing to build that reference product because they know the reimbursement's stable. They've been doing it. They don't have to add this modifier, which is a change in process. All of these things together um, could potentially inhibit 
the, the biosimilar um, utilization. And I think that, you know, similar to what we talked about earlier, um, you know, what we need to be doing now is developing policies and having a reimbursement framework that support biosimilars and a sustainable biosimilar market. Um, and if we don't have that, I think ultimately um, patients could lose out on, on lowering the, the cost of drugs um, and paving the way for new innovation. So we have to make sure that any policies, coding, billing, otherwise, um, support a long-term sustainable biosimilar market. I don't know if any of you are aware of being in the healthcare industry, but um, we have a new president who is very interested in repealing and replacing Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. Um, and there's been some really interesting unsuccessful movement around that so far. We'll see what happens in the coming months. But let's talk about uh, how biosimilars could be affected by this. So the Biosimilar Price Competition and Innovation Act was actually part of the Affordable Care Act, but it's not necessarily something you hear very many people talk about when they say repeal and replace. Do you think that that would be a section that would be left intact if uh, the ACA were repealed and replaced? If so, um, yes or no. You can say yes or no to that question. I'll just do a round robin here. <laughs> and then the other question is, is, if it's intact, if you think it will stay as is, do you think Congress will address changes or do you think they will punt it to the court and let the courts keep making decisions on some of the questions that have been left lingering with the BPCIA? Molly? So. I will start by saying, uh, yes, I think it remains in place. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's clear that um, policymakers on both sides of the aisle want to see um, drug prices come down. And I think they all recognize um, that the biosimilar pathway, which was part of the original Obamacare ACA, is an important part of that. Um, so, you know, to date, we have not heard that that would be um, in jeopardy. And I don't think that it would be purely because of, of the concerns over drug pricing. Another reason it would probably stay is that uh, the Congressional Budget Office might score a bill that repeals biosimilars pathways as uh, more expensive because Medicare and federal insurance will have to pay more uh, without a biosimilar pathway. So I, I think we're probably all in agreement. Hakun can uh, continue. <laughs> yeah, I, I can have confirmed that we are in agreement on this. That uh, honestly, the BPCIA also, from an IP standpoint, forms the litigation pathway for biosimilars. And honestly, I think it was meant to be kind of analogous to what was done of Hatch Waxman, kind of allow for a process to deal with IP issues prior to the product actually launching, then having to worry about declaratory judgment actions and preliminary injunctions and all this messy stuff in the courts that nobody wants to be involved in. So why not? get it done early. And I think the problem is that there are a little, there's a lot of loopholes there, right? There's a lot of issues there. But I certainly think that the BPCIA will, will stay intact. Okay. And do you think we'll see changes to it added in, or do you think that they'll let the courts decide as things come up? Well, I, I, am, I am of the mind that the courts still have a couple, couple questions to answer, right? Because right now, as it stands after Sandoz v. Amgen, um, the entire litigation pathway there is optional. And that is a little bit of an issue, because I suspect that Congress didn't spend all that time drafting a statute with a very convoluted, and I mean that sincerely, convoluted pathway to litigation that was meant to be optional. And not only optional, but fully in the hands of the biosimilar manufacturer. Um, you know, the way that Sandoz and, and, and Amgen Court, the Supreme Court and the Sandoz v. Amgen uh, um, uh, case actually came down on this, they basically said that there really is no remedy if you don't take the first step. 
you know, and the first step was basically that after the biosimilar applicant actually files the application, within 20 days, you're supposed to supply that to the reference product sponsor, along with manufacturing information. So the big question was, okay, so what happens if I don't do that as a biosimilar manufacturer? And the answer from the Supreme Court is, oh, tough luck, go sue them. And that's what will happen. You'll have to bring a declaratory judgment action. So you might think from the outside, oh, well, that's fine. They still have a remedy. They can still go to the courts. But the fact of the matter is that the BPCIA litigation pathway was meant to narrow down the IP so you could focus on aspects of what should be challenged now and what should be challenged later. Because as we've talked about, biosimilars and biologics are so much more complex than small molecules. And they have so much more IP. You know, if you look at a typical Orange Book listed small molecule product, maybe you have one, two, three patents. And outside, maybe you have 10. But that's like a very rare thing nowadays. But biosimilars and biologics, you can have 50, 60, 70, 80 patents and all different aspects of it. And of course, the products are not exact copies because you just, they're, they're made from living cells, so they're not gonna be exact copies. So infringement is an issue. So how do you narrow all that stuff down and do this in an orderly way? Well, Congress thought BPCIA would, have, would, would address that. But now that it's optional, you know, I, I, it makes it a little bit of the Wild West again. And I think that is an issue, and I wouldn't be surprised if Congress wanted to revisit that if they had the opportunity. Okay, another ACA question. The Independent Payment Advisory Board, or IPAB, which has not quite been the most popular uh, policy on either side of the aisle. Um, can you all talk a little bit about the IPAB, what they're all about, and why everyone wants to get rid of it? Sure, the, the Independent Payment Advisory Board, IPAB, um, is uh, not yet in place. It's uh, what would be an unelected board uh, that would report to Congress with suggestions of how to um, damp down um, Medicare expenditures if uh, the system grows to be too expensive. Um, a lot of uh, provider groups are against IPAB, and uh, there's a lot of uh, support in Congress to take that piece out and control costs in different ways. Um, from my perspective as a rheumatologist and an internist uh, taking care of patients, for the last 20 years, under a different system before uh, the IPAB, uh, doctors essentially didn't get raises in the reimbursement for taking care of patients uh, in the Medicare system uh, to cover the costs of inflation uh, in rent, payroll, health insurance for their employees. Um, so what you saw is a lot of doctors uh, left the Medicare system or started uh, left insurance in general, started taking cash uh, payments from patients. And so it leads to this point today where um, one of the hardest questions I get from patients in a rheumatology clinic with arthritis and rheumatologic diseases is not about a patient's specific condition, but rather the simple question, can you refer me to a good primary care doctor that takes Medicare? It's really hard. Um, so with IPAB, we see the possibility that that board might reduce payments even further to physicians and make it harder to stay in practice and take care of people in the Medicare system. And so we'd rather see a different way. 
So now let's talk about the state level. So a majority of states, I think we're up to 33 now, have enacted laws concerning the substitution of biosimilars for reference products. Now I know state pharmacy boards and states work together and put laws out all the time. How do these laws differ from what you traditionally see? And uh, have they gone above and beyond and are they doing what you're hoping they're going to do for biosimilar products? Yeah, so I think the, you know, an, an interesting um, part of after the ACA passed and we, we had a biosimilar pathway um, was the realization that we had 50 state laws um, plus a couple territories that we had to update to actually allow for substitution. And the District of Columbia. Uh, yes, and the, and the District of Columbia. Thank you. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's sort of this um, typical thing where you pass a federal law and, and you think, okay, this is great. We're going to, the FDA is going to approve biosimilars and patients are going to get them. Uh, the reality is that pharmacy laws reside within the state. Um, and so we have um, seen to date, the, as you mentioned, a majority of states now have um, laws, but we had to do the same thing back in you know the 80s over Hatch-Waxman. So the idea is that we implement these laws that essentially allow for the automatic substitution of interchangeable biosimilars. Um, I think that's an important uh, distinction because as we talked about interchangeability earlier, um, we are building substitution laws based on that additional layer of designation from the FDA and study by the manufacturer. Um, I think that states, you've seen different challenges in states. Um, I, I would say that you know the physician notification piece is is probably been the, the most controversial and the biggest sticking point um, in terms of how soon after a substitution um, are you required to communicate that back to the physician. So the physician knows um, which product they have. The patient notification happens when the patient gets the product, of course, um, but the physician piece is, is the sticking point. And you've seen some states implement as soon as 24 hours, and you've seen other states be more in the three to five day range. Um, the truth is, is that it's, it's quicker than small molecule generics and I think that speaks to the complexity of, of these products. Um, but, you know, I think we have a little ways to go in terms of obviously getting um, all the states to update them. And I think that, you know, some of the, the uniformity issues, um, I think as time moves on and we see interchangeable products, I certainly think we could see a situation where from a pharmacy perspective, um, maybe the 24-hour notification is, is too quick. Um, and maybe from the physician perspective, five days is too long. So I think that we will see, um, we'll have some learnings on what the right thing is and, and probably need to go back and revisit some of them. Um, but I think the most important thing is, is to make sure that no matter where a patient lives, they are able to get um, an interchangeable biosimilar um, substituted if that's the appropriate choice for them. So um, important topic, a little bit of a weedy topic and when you think about biosimilars, but very critical. I agree that notification is the big piece in the state uh, substitution laws. The American College of Rheumatology um, really wants the patient and the doctor to be as closely involved as possible at that moment when somebody's moving from a reference product to a biosimilar. Um, and the position of the college being that the doctor should write the prescription when they're changing to uh, a biosimilar. However, in states where it's uh, legal for a pharmacist to substitute a biosimilar, uh, the American College of Rheumatology, and I think a lot of doctors want to know right away that that uh, change, that substitution has been made. Um, the reason is because we're treating complex diseases 
and we're using complex drugs. And uh, pa patients might be giving themselves a shot of one of these drugs every week or even twice a week. So the number of days makes a difference if somebody's taking a drug every three or four days. Um, when a doctor finds out only a week later, that's too long, but uh, five days might be uh, short enough. Okay. Are any states popping out as interesting case studies on biosimilars? Well, I, I would say one thing, and this is not really in my area as IP, but it's actually in the area of cost. Uh, I noticed that some states like Colorado, Georgia, Illinois, North Carolina, and Texas are requiring that the interchangeable biosimilar must have the lowest cost. Uh, and I think that's a little tricky because, you know, as we saw in the Hatch-Waxman, orange book space, Hatch-Waxman space, small molecule space, you know, the, is it really lowest upfront costs or lowest net costs? Or, you know, what are we really talking about? Because you have rebates, you have discounts, you have things that don't appear upfront. And it can make it really tricky if, unless they want to get into a real economic analysis as to what lowest cost means. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts on that. Well, I wonder if you think that that'll increase the amount of transparency in those states. What do you think, Akun? Well, I, I don't, it's unclear to me if it will. I mean, it, it, there, I guess it would, to some, to some extent, I think that it will require people to to say something about it, but how they actually characterize lowest costs. I mean, I'm not an economist, but I'm sure that most economists can call something that's $10 more lower cost in some way. And I think that's, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a tough thing. So I, I think, yes, perhaps it can be some more transparency, but I think it leaves a lot of room for a lot of um, ambiguity. Mm. You raise an interesting point. I've had the pleasure of, of working on some of the, the language and the specificity, and I think the, the question around lower cost to whom is, is um, a critical one in sort of the broad drug pricing debate, but certainly in, in these um, bills. I think it's typically to the patient. So, you know, what is their actual cost share um, and, and how does it ring up at the, the pharmacy level? Um, and, I, and, you know, that may end up being, that type of language may end up being something that in hindsight, either works really well to ensure that the patient, based on their benefit design and plan, really is getting the lowest um, out-of-pocket cost for them. Um, it could also be that we see that, you know, that's one of those things that maybe it was written in with, you know, really good intentions, but it's actually very difficult to execute. Um, I think, you know, it's sort of right now we're a little bit in the unknown because we um, don't have any interchangeable products yet. But I, I do think that that's an important um, question and, and potentially one of those areas that, you know, we make laws for what we know now um, and, and that they don't always reflect what the market actually looks like. Let's move on and talk about biosimilars and litigation. The Patent Trial and Appeal Board, or PTAB, has been playing a role in patent disputes over biologics and biosimilars, and this role has been growing. What is the PTAB, Hakun, if you can give us some information <laughs> on that, and why is it becoming increasingly involved in patent disputes over these products? Okay, so contrary to popular belief, it's not a low caloric drink from the 70s. It actually is a trial court in the PTO. It actually hears and decides contested proceedings and other things that came about from the America Invents Act, or the AIA, as we like to call it. Now, the AIA was passed into law in September of 2011, and it kind of created two different type of contested proceedings that are interesting to us in biosimilars, and that's the IPR process, which is the inter-parties review, and the PGR process, which is the post-grant review. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it allows for someone to challenge patents outside of the court system. And you might think, well, do we really need another venue for that? And the, well, at least with the AIA, the answer was yes. And what they did was they actually shifted the balance a little bit when they created these processes because 
there's a number of things that are different than when you go into litigation. Because when you go into litigation of a patent, you have a presumption of validity. If you go into the a PTAB, you have no presumption of validity. They start from a neutral, this is, we're gonna look at it de novo, so to speak. And when you go into the PTAB, there is a lower burden to proving invalidity. You only have to show by preponderance of the evidence, so 51%, and that will get you an invalid patent. You will allow you to invalidate a patent. In a district court, it's seven, it's, what I call 70%, but it's clear and convincing evidence. So somewhere around 70%, 75%. So it's a significant gap there. You know, you can be invalid in the PTAB, but not invalid in district court, and we've seen that. And the Federal Circuit has looked at that, and the Supreme Court has looked at that, and they've deferred to the PTAB. So this is a very dangerous thing for patent owners, and we've seen that play out over time. So the other aspect of the IPR and PGR process is that they're both statutorily limited to 18 months from the date of the petition to the final decision. Now that may sound like a long time, but you know, litigation can take a long time, and usually more than 18 months. This is a very short time period. And more importantly, it's limited to just invalidity. So there are no infringement issues. So as a patent holder, you have no ability to raise any issues concerning infringement of a new product that's coming in the market. And even one step further than that, you don't even need to have standing. So anybody can do it. I could do it, you could do it, anybody could do it. You could just walk in and say, I wanna challenge that patent. And we've seen that. We've seen that from a number of hedge fund managers who've come in and tried to manipulate the stock price by filing a bunch of IPRs against patents that are owned by pharmaceutical companies. So it is a little bit dangerous area, and, and what we saw at the beginning was that there were a lot of IPRs coming through the PTAB, and that the cancellation rate was astronomical. It was up to 80, 90% of claims that were uh, challenged were being canceled in the PTAB. And it was so much that the uh, former Chief Federal Circuit Judge uh, Randall Rader actually called it the death squad, because any patent that went in there basically was not gonna get out unscathed. Now, in the biosimilar path, you know, we haven't seen as many of these IPRs yet. They're starting to grow. In 2015, there are about 10. In 2016, there may be 10 or 11. In 2017, we've seen over three times that already to date. So this is exploding as far as biosimilars and biologics are concerned. And so what does that really mean for biosimilar patents? Well, it's kind of yet to be determined because we're not really sure. Because when you look at the overall numbers, the cancellation rates have started to come back in line with what you want. They're down to around 60% for all technologies. And for the orange book, small molecule technologies, they're about 50-50. And then you, you see that what's happening in the biologics, biosimilar space, and this is very small sample size, but they're about 50-50 as well. So that could mean that life science patents are just generally harder to invalidate because of the unpredictability of the science as compared to the electrical and mechanical fields, but it's unclear. But what we do know is that there are 30 biosimilar IPRs currently pending, and with a short time frame, they are gonna get decided soon, and we're gonna have a lot more data about it. And I, and I will say that I got a lot of this data from uh, biologicshq.com, which actually follows the, the statistics, and um, the numbers are small now, but after those decisions come out, I think we're gonna know a lot more about it. Back in June, the Supreme Court made a ruling on the case um, Sandoz versus Amgen, and that was clarifying some issues around the patent dance, that uh, the so-called BPCA patent dance. This has left some other questions unanswered. So what clarifications are biosimilar developers looking for now? What did they get from that? 
And uh, what about innovators? So we talked a little bit about this a little earlier, and the two aspects of the patent dance, as we call it, this BPCIA litigation pathway for biosimilars, that were it was impacted by the Supreme Court decision was, first of all, the aspect of what happens if you don't give them the biosimilar application. But the second uh, part of it was, you know, what happens with the two lists of patents that you narrow this down to in this pathway? One, you litigate right away. The other one is keyed off this commercial manufacturing notice. And uh, that question was kind of answered by the Supreme Court. That's file similar, can you actually give that notice anytime they want, even if it's not an FDA approved product? So I'll put that aside. So all the real questions that people are really looking for clarification on is what has to be done in order to get the BPCIA process going? Because right now it looks like it may be optional. Now there is one aspect of it that was remanded back to the federal circuit, and that is whether state law injunctions can be used to enforce the BPCIA. Uh, because right, all, they, all the Supreme Court said was that federal injunctions can't be used. So that is a question. And then the second question is, if so, is it preempted? And the United States actually filed an amicus brief saying, yes, it's preempted. So clearly they think that they preempt everything, so that's not really a surprise. But it will be something that people will look at uh, pretty carefully to see if there is still life in the BPCIA litigation pathway. And the second aspect is, you know, we talked about total noncompliance, right? I'm not going to give you the application. I'm not going to give you my manufacturing information. Come sue me. But what happens if I just give you the application and I don't give you the manufacturing information? So let's say partial noncompliance. Well, so far, it looks like, according to Amgen v. Haspira and some other things we've seen, that you're left with the same problem. You don't get to start the BPCIA pathway. Go sue me. You just go and get a declaratory judgment action. So again, Congress's intent, I think, was thwarted. And you can kind of just, you, you kind of see the ambiguity in the language in the statute. Because let's talk about an even stickier situation. What does manufacturing information mean? How much do I have to give? I don't know. I mean, that, so maybe I, as a biosimilar manufacturer, gave my application, gave my manufacturing information, but it's not enough. Does that mean now that I have to get sued in, in a DJ, or does that mean I get to go into the BPCIA pathway? Who knows? So I think those are all open questions. A lot of people are looking for clarification. I'm not sure the courts are going to be able to clarify it. It might be come down to Congress. I appreciate your uh, talking about the patent dance a little mm -hmm. bit, Hakun. Um, as a rheumatologist taking care of people, um, what was meaningful to me was uh, the first part that you mentioned that because it's now simple and you put it aside, um, the notification can start at any time now. Mm -hmm which means that um, I'll learn about a drug when it's FDA approved generally. Um, I'll, it'll, it'll entice patients and doctors to find out more information about it. And the sooner that that drug can be available after the FDA approval date, I think the better to improve communication and education. And then also it's just refreshing that the marketplace is working and the drugs can come out quicker and safer. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting point here, though, is that the reason why biosimilars wanted to give notice early was not because they wanted to market the drug earlier. It's because they wanted to trigger the litigation on the second set of patents earlier. So it was actually kind of looking at ways to manipulate the statute to trigger more litigation earlier. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying that when you say, I'm going to give a 180-day commercial marketing notice, you'd think that you'd have something to commercially market. You can't just say, hey, guys, I plan to make this drug sometime in the future. Here's your notice. I'm going to market it someday. But the court said that's OK. So it's OK. 
I know we talked a little bit earlier about the Pfizer lawsuit against Johnson Johnson. Um, what other litigation should we be looking toward um, in the coming months as an industry? Okay, so I, I will say that every patent geek out there is looking at the oil states uh, pending Supreme Court uh, case. And the reason why is that oil states actually is looking at whether the IPR process is even constitutional. You know, the fact of the matter is that they're looking at whether patents are considered private property, and if it's private property, whether it can be extinguished by anything other than a, a, uh, a Article III court. And if that's the case, that it can't be extinguished by anything but an Article III court, then the PTAB, being a regulatory agency, so to speak, can't do it. And that means everything that we've seen canceled in the last five, six years suddenly pops back to life. And that would be um, very interesting. That would change the dynamic of IP litigation dramatically. Because a lot of challengers have been looking to this IPR process in the PTAB in lieu of litigation, because it's actually cheaper and faster. And if that goes away, then not only will we have suddenly all these patents that are now back and valid, but it will change the way people move forward in the future as well. Um, the other cases that I will mention is that there is an Amgen-Sanofi case that looks at the use of permanent injunctions in drug patent disputes. I think that will be interesting to see how that turns out because that will significantly impact biosimilar applicants and whether they want to risk, you know, at-risk launch or not, uh, assuming that the regulatory exclusivity has already been uh, has already been completed. And then the Amgen v. Hospira case actually talks about whether uh, the kind of ramp up and making of the product and kind of warehousing the biosimilar product in advance of launching it, whether that is something that's under the safe harbor or not. And the question there is whether the safe harbor actually applies to commercial batches of biosimilar that's prepared prior to launch. And in that case, Hospira has manufactured over 20 million doses with a commercial value of hundreds of millions of dollars. And they say, well, it's, quote, solely for uses reasonably related to the development and submission of information unquote, to the FDA. So therefore, it's safe harbored. But is it? I don't know. And if it isn't, that could be significant damages. Hi, right, Dr. Worthing. Let's talk a little bit about all of the litigation and the complexities around that. And the bottom line is patient access, right? And I think you talked about that a few seconds earlier. Just ultimately, you want to get patients to products faster, right? Safe products as soon as possible. Um, what, what are concerns, not just with this patent litigation, um, other cases you see coming to market around you know, anti-competitive behavior, all of that, what is the ultimate effect for that for your patient population? Well, you know, to tell you the truth, we don't talk too much about lawsuits in the clinic, but um, the overall effect of a delay in the courts or in litigation um, of which I have learned a lot about on this panel. I appreciate it. <laughs> the net effect of all that is that um, there's a delay in getting drugs that might be cheaper, that people might have an easier time getting control of their disease, their aching joints, you know, their uh, other organs that might be inflamed. And um, so I'll, I'll just register that there's a little bit of frustration about it. Um, we can appreciate, uh, doctors appreciate the innovation that helps us and the tools that we can use to take care of patients. Um, but I think a lot of us want to just see the new drugs come out so that we can use them if they're safe and effective and meet our bar. And how many of your patients are walking in your office knowing what a biosimilar is or following this? What percent of your patients actually know when Flectra is available or when Flexus is coming out and this could be a potential therapy for them to switch over to? Good question. Uh, I have the pleasure of practicing in Washington, D.C., downtown on K Street. And a lot of people are actually involved in the healthcare business and policy. 
So some of them actually are, are uh, people who know a lot about biosimilars or even more than me. But the average patient, um, I'm taking um, some little extra time in a lot of my visits to tell people who are taking a biologic uh, about what a biosimilar is and a little bit about the marketplace, just so that they know they might do some research if they're interested um, for when the time comes that they might be um, deciding or we might be deciding together to move to a biosimilar. Not too many people have heard about them. Let me add one thing, and that's with respect to uh, patent litigations and its impact on consumer access to biologics. I want to make note that the BPCIA pathway, like the Hatch-Waxman pathway before it, was meant to kind of sort out all the IP issues prior to the approval of the generic or biosimilar. So it was meant to not delay the access, to actually be done during the regulatory stay period. So in the Hatch-Waxman context, that would be the 30-month regulatory stay. And in the BPCIA pathway, it would be this kind of new biologic entity, 12-year kind of uh, stay on approval. So in essence, although patent litigation can take a long time, I think what actually slows things down is, is not the litigation itself, because you know, patent litigation can be slow, but it's usually not eight years slow. And typically, it's actually the regulatory exclusivity that will actually slow it down. Because after you have the 12 years, you can also get pediatrics, which is another six months, and you can kind of go on from there. Um, so I'm not saying that there aren't instances in which the regulatory stay has uh, been extinguished and that litigation is ongoing and that could cause some issues of timing. But I'm saying that in the typical uh, process, the BPCIA was meant to actually expedite the litigation to make sure it's done early on so it doesn't slow the access of the biosimilar to the marketplace so that all those IP issues are sorted out now and doesn't end up being a situation where someone has to launch at risk or have to go for a preliminary injunction. Thank you all. This has been really informative. Um, before we wrap up our discussion, I'm just going to take a lap around the table and see if anyone has any final comments to share. Molly? Yeah, I mean, I think that this has been a great discussion. I think um, the biosimilar pathway um, holds a lot of promise uh, for the U.S. in terms of patient access and hopefully lowering costs. Um, but this uh, discussion shows the complexity and the challenges um, that we have ahead. I think that, you know, this is an area where our friends in Europe are ahead of us. They've had biosimilars um, available for the last 11 years, um, somewhere around 700 patient or 700 million patient days. Um, so, you know, we have, we have a long way to go in terms of seeing more products hit the market, um, seeing the impact on, on spend and patient cost share. Um, and, you know, it's an exciting time in the U.S. to see um, a brand new market really start to develop. So we remain um, cautiously optimistic that stakeholders, physicians, patients, um, policymakers will continue to, to see the value and um, support a long-term and sustainable biosimilar market. So it's an exciting time. Okay, thank you, Molly. Dr. Worthing? Um, biologics have truly revolutionized the care of diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and other autoimmune diseases. And so biosimilars' um, purpose is to reduce the cost, which unfortunately is very high right now, and improve access to these great drugs. Um, when I look at the chance that uh, biosimilars might not realize that promise and keep that promise. For example, the distribution system, um, other issues that might come up uh, in terms of confidence and prescribing. If this doesn't work out, it kind of reminds me of uh, about 20 years ago when Y2K was happening for uh, people who were using a computer. And all of the work that had to go into making sure there was this seamless transition to uh, the new millennium. And 
right now, we're doing that kind of work in biosimilars. So um, I'm very grateful for uh, being on this panel and the ability to communicate my views and um, all of the different stakeholders, manufacturers that are creating these products, the uh, government lawmakers and regulators approving and regulating the distribution of these products, and ultimately my fellow physicians and all the patients who are learning about them, prescribing and taking them um, so that we can also have that seamless transition to a time when they're less expensive and that everybody who needs them has access to it. Great, thank you. So biologics are definitely the future of medicine. I mean, small molecules will always be there based on the ability to synthesize compounds and screen for activity, but biologics are essentially untapped. It's like, as I said earlier in the green room, it's like science fiction, right? We never thought we'd get to this point. But what that means is that we're gonna see many, many, many growing pains with biologics. And we're gonna see more of the growing pains of biologics than we saw with small molecules, including optimizing paths to innovation as well as protecting that innovation of IP. But one of the major differences between small molecules and biologics is that there's significant increase in unpredictability that researchers are faced with due to the complex structures of those compounds as well as the method in which they are produced. And because of this, there is a much higher barrier to entry for any research entity to develop viable patient treatments out of biologics. And this resource commitment will in turn increase the amount of IP obtained, particularly in light of the fact that the US is now first a file system, so people are racing to the patent office to get their inven inventions on file, as well as increase the amount of IP challenges in part due to the IPR and PGR process that we talked about. Now, more than ever, researchers will have to be vigilant about their biologics development, not only for the safety and unpredictability issues in the science, but also in the way and manner in which they seek protection for their ideas and research. Now, it's gonna be a really interesting ride but I bet everybody better keep their eyes on the road because we can only guess what that road's gonna look like. Okay, three great sets of insights from three very different perspectives. Really, really appreciate all of that. Thank you all so much for your contributions to the discussion today. On behalf of our panel, we thank you for joining us and hope you found this peer exchange discussion to be useful and informative.